Good morning, church family. Last week, we looked at Genesis 39. We saw that Joseph once again lost everyone and everything he knew as he was betrayed in Potiphar's house. He has been thrown into prison, into a pit, with no chance of rescue. No one is coming. His father thinks he's dead. His brothers are the reason he's in this mess. And it seems like a nearly impossible situation. His only saving grace is that he trusts in God and lives like it, in a place full of people who've given up. They're trapped in this prison with a life sentence. But God is not done with Joseph and is beginning to move things around. And he's beginning to orchestrate the events that are going to lead to the, the miraculous like rescue out of this prison. But God's not there. But it, we're not there yet in the story. Before God pulls off this impossible rescue mission, he has one more thing to teach Joseph. I want you to follow along with me as I read our text, Genesis 40. Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined to prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to him in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in there with him in custody in his master's house. Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dreams to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, pressed them in Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to them, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift you up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph answered him and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on the tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among the servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now this text is a, a narrative of events. So as we look at this narrative, I want to ask questions this morning. I want to, I want to 
poke at this chapter and ask why. Why is this narrative in the Bible? Why is Moses recording this? And as we, we poke and we ask questions this morning, my hope is that we'll begin to see applications coming out of this text. That this isn't just a, well, this happened, so let's move on to the next chapter. But I want to stop here and ask questions and learn what is it that God is teaching. And what I want to show you this morning is that what God is showing Joseph in this passage, our main thesis is that our hope is only going to come from God. And God needs to teach Joseph this before he's going to use him mightily in the next few chapters. We're going to take this passage in three sections. First, I want to look at verses 1 through 8. We'll look at how Joseph is behaving. Then verses 9 through 22, the meaning of the men and the dreams. And then in verse 23, we'll look thirdly at the failure that points ahead. So let's look first now, verses 1 through 8, how Joseph is behaving himself. We see at the beginning of the chapter here that two new prisoners have joined Joseph in prison for committing a crime against Pharaoh. Very likely these guys committed the same offense, which is why they're in prison at the same time. They're in prison now for a while. It's worth noting, we saw in the last chapter, Joseph has been working his way up the prison. He's a model prisoner. He's working hard. He hasn't given up hope. He's moved up the ranks a little bit, and the, the, the chief jailer trusts him. But at the same time, he's still a servant to these Egyptians. He doesn't have quite the status that he lost in Potiphar's house. So he's working hard. He's trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to be faithful to God. But he's still a servant of these two Egyptian men who are placed beside him in prison. And I think it's interesting. You'll note in verse 6 that he takes initiative. Yeah, he's supposed to you know, bring their food and check in on them. But he, when he sees them downcast, he takes initiative and says, hey, What's bothering you? You guys both look terrible. What happened? Why are you feeling so bad? You know, it's worth noting, interpreting dreams, that's not in his job description. He did not have to do this. He could have looked at these men and gone, well, they're having a bad day, but I guess they're in prison, so that makes sense. You know, here's your food, here's your water, I'll see you guys at my next check-in. But he doesn't. He takes compassion on these two Egyptian men. He has compassion for them, and he wants to know, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? And I, I love the way that even in his suffering, even as he's suffering unfairly in this prison for years now, he's still living in such a way as to show love and compassion to other people. And this, I think, brings us to our first application. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I want to talk about it some more this week. What does it mean to live with hope? If Joseph is living with hope now in this prison, what does that mean for us? What does that look like on a on a day-to-day -day kind of thing? How do, how do we actually apply this? Well, on a bigger scale, it means that we trust our lives, our career, our marriage, our family, whatever it is to Jesus. We trust our whole being to Jesus. We let go of trying to control our story and our narrative, and not out of fatalism, but out of hope that God is going to use us in a way we can't predict. And so we say, yes, I don't know what God's going to do in my life, but I know he's going to do something, and I'm excited to see what it is. So I'm going to lean into it. It's not a fatal backing up of, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so I guess I'm just along for the ride. No, it's an excitement of God's got a plan for my life. He's put people in my life. He's put me in this church for a reason. And I can't wait to figure out what that reason is. So I'm going to lean into it and see what's going to, what God is going to do through me. And I, I say there's three ways to apply this. The first, that is we seek opportunity. Look for opportunities to bless, to serve, to grow to pick up new skills, to meet new people. If God gives you an opportunity and it's, it's a right and just and a good thing to do, do it. Be willing to take opportunities. Second, I would say that try to prepare for more than just what you want to be. 
You know, if your goal in life is to be one thing, don't only just focus on that one thing. Recognize God may use you in a host of different skills, in a host of different environments, you know? Maybe for a season God calls you to be a nursery worker, and another season you're called to be a Sunday school teacher, and another season you're called to preach, and another t- season you're called to clean the toilets and fix the flappers on the, in the, the broken bathroom. Wherever God puts you in the church, wherever God puts you in life, serve eagerly, learn skills, engage with what God has put before you. And thirdly here, I'd encourage you, recognize seasons in your life. For my own life, I recognize God's put me in a season where I have little children. I have three little ones under five. My wife and I would love to travel. That's not that season of life. We're in the season of life where we stay home a lot. And praise God, we get to have a wonderful time with my little girls and I get to play games with them. And I enjoy this season that God's put me in, recognizing that all the things that I want to do that don't fit in this season, God may choose to give them to me later in my life, or I may wait till heaven and receive all of an eternity of blessings. But either way, I'm content with where God has placed me now. And so I hold my life with an open hand, recognizing that God is going to put things into my life and he's going to take things out of my life. And so my hands are open and I accept what's given and I'm thankful for the things that God takes away. This is the way we're called to live. And this is the way I think Joseph is living. He's not bitter that he lost his job at Potiphar's house. It was slavery after all, so hopefully he's recognizing that. But at the same time, he's living with open hands saying, God, I'm going to do whatever I have in front of me. And if that means I'm the servant to these two disgraced Egyptian guys, I'm not just going to bring them their food. I'm going to care for their souls. I'm going to see what I can do to bless and help the people around me, even if it's just these weird Egyptian prisoner guys, you know, a cupbearer and a baker. But think about this. We have more hope than Joseph had. We can live in light of the cross and the empty tomb. We have the New Testament. We know where this story is going. Joseph... If you remember, his story is pointing us to the death of Christ, but he's not even to the part of his own life that's going to foreshadow the the empty tomb. We live in light of an empty tomb. So so what does that mean? What does it mean that we live in light of the cross? This thing that Joseph doesn't even really get to see fully. Let me answer that with two more applications. My first thing, when I say live in light of the empty cross, what does that mean on a daily basis? It means daily that you remember this. That your sin is paid for. And when you look at other people, when you engage with other Christians, you see other Christians as people whose sins are paid for. Christ has died for them. Their sins are paid for. Their sins are covered. And so you can forgive them. And when you engage with unbelievers, those who do not know Jesus, you see that their sin will either be paid for by Jesus if they trust in him and they need forgiveness, or it will be paid for on the day of wrath by God. It says in Romans 12, 19, God says, vengeance is his. So what this means for us practically is that we let go of grudges. The scheming, the comparisons, the getting even, all of that goes. You don't need to waste your life on that if you're a Christian. You are free to set yourself, you set yourself free from comparing yourself to others, from always looking at people and judging their sins. Their sins are paid for by Christ or will be paid for on judgment. And you can live understanding that you can love people even when they sin against you. And secondly, and maybe even more importantly, when it comes to thinking about sin, this means you see your own sin, if you are a believer, as being forgiven. And yes, your sin is deplorable. It's abominable. It's despicable. It costs Jesus' death to forgive. 
But remember this, brothers and sisters. Jesus went to the cross willingly, out of love, before you were even born, before he could even stop, before you could even try to stop him. He has already died for your sins, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God, and sat down at the throne. He completed the mission. It's done. And he did it because he loves you, because he wanted to do it. And that is so important for us to, to remember as we think about our own sin, as we, we look at ourselves in the mirror. So what this means for us is that we don't get to punish ourselves. We don't get to beat ourselves up and, 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 and pull ourselves down every day. Yes, we are unworthy. But Jesus has made us worthy and said that he has made us worthy. To deny that in the way that we walk, the way that we talk, the way that we carry ourselves, is to question and second-guess the nature of Jesus. To say, Jesus made a mistake by, saying, by saving me, is not to speak honorably. It's not worshipful of God to live that way. And trust me, I know how hard this is. I know what it's like to live with myself, to see my own sin. But we learn to love the person in the mirror only because Jesus did it first. See yourself as God's man, God's woman, who is forgiven and living on a mission for your Savior. Not to earn God's favor, but out of gratitude. Think about it. If you say, I love myself because I deserve to be loved. What you're doing in that moment, and I'm sure you've all heard that statement, is you're taking the anchor of your ship and throwing it onto your ship. And now you're anchored to yourself. I deserve to be loved because I deserve to be loved. You're, you're anchoring yourself to yourself. What happens when a ship is anchored to itself? You're going to drift all over the place and wonder why your life's a wreck. But if you throw your, your, your anchor on Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we just sang, on the solid rock of knowing that Jesus' death paid for your sins and that Jesus loves you, now you are anchored to truth. And you can say, I love myself because I love Jesus and Jesus loves me enough to die and redeem me and make me worth being lovable. And that is such a steady rock to rest on. That is such an assurance. You don't have to repeat mantras over and over and try to drum up some self-love out of no, nothing. You have a solid rock to stand on and say, I have hope and peace and joy because my rock will not change. That tomb is empty and it's staying empty. That cross is completed. Jesus is not on there anymore. It's done. And I can rest and learn to love myself because I love my Savior who loves me. And that's true humility and how we can love ourselves in humility. So that is what I would say it means to live in hope. But let's continue on now with our passage. Verses 9 through 22, we see two men with two different dreams. So, what is the meaning of these two dreams? What is God trying to teach us here? Well, I think it's interesting first, when we wrestle with the question of why do we sleep and why do we dream, scientists still don't have a reason for that. We, we know that biologically our bodies get tired. We don't know why they get tired. There's no biological reason. There's no like, this is the tired chemical. Scientists have never found the actual reason. And while we're sleeping, our brains are just as awake as when we're, we're asleep. So that doesn't seem to make sense. But we know that we have to sleep because we're tired. And we know that while our brains are asleep, they, they generate these dreams. And maybe it's conjuring up memories. And maybe we remember our dreams. And maybe we don't remember our dreams. Different people experience them differently. And I think, it's, I think it's very telling that you will spend a third of your life estimate unconscious and completely helpless. And if that doesn't draw you to trusting in God, I don't know what will. 
You're going to spend a third of your life having to trust in God's kindness. Why not spend the waking hours as well? And so we wrestle as a species with why do we dream? And what this passage says is that all, it's not saying that all dreams have meaning. But what it is saying is that some dreams can have meanings. And if God chooses to speak through dreams, he can. It's not saying he's always speaking through dreams, but that he can speak to dreams. But if he speaks through dreams, the meaning belongs to him. And it's, it's worth noting that these are, these are very specific dreams, very vivid dreams. These are not your ordinary dreams. These are dreams that shook these two men. And if, if you want to know God's will for your life, he's promised to speak to us through the Bible. So if you want to know, if you want to hear God's voice, you can pick this up and know that you're hearing God's voice. Don't wait for God to send you a dream. You know our commands, wait for me and I'll send you a dream and then you'll know God's will for your life. No, he says, read God's word. You'll hear God's word for your life. There it is right there in text. But that doesn't mean God can't speak through dreams, and he does in this chapter. So we see in these two dreams, these two men dream about what's about to happen in their lives. And these dreams are, are very, very specific. There's, there's details in there. And it, it's easy for us to look at it, and then we know the passage ahead, and we know what's coming, and go, oh, these dream interpretations are obvious. But imagine for a second you've never read Genesis before, and, and you read just the dream, and then put your hand over the answer. You, if you ever read one of those old detective books as a kid, you, know, you turn the page upside down to find the answer. Imagine you're reading the dream for the very first time, you cover it up, and you've got to figure out exactly what's going to happen. Now maybe if you knew that Pharaoh's birthday was in three days, that that might be significant. You might be able to piece that together with historical context. I think it's kind of fun. Uh, Pharaoh's birthday's in three days. It's the first birthday party in the Bible, and my birthday's in two days. So. I thought, that was, I thought that was kind of a fun little coincidence, so I'm preaching a birthday passage. <laughs> but you, you, might, you might be able to figure that part out. But in terms of the significance of the bread and the cup, and especially, I would say, the fact that uh, the baker is going to be hanged, um, I don't think I would have pulled uh, the birds as being hung on a tree. But Joseph, with the, will, with the mind of God, is able to interpret these dreams accurately. And he gets every detail right. He gets the, the when, the three days. He gets exactly what Pharaoh's choices are going to be. He knows what Pharaoh's going to do before Pharaoh does it, because God tells him. And he predicts the result. Who's going to be raised up? Who's going to be cast down? And then, of course, this hanging on a tree. So these dreams are accurately interpreted. But I want you to, to, to hear some clues here. Think about this with me for a second. We, we have Joseph saying, remember me, Right? We have a man hanging on a tree, and then we have a man on either side here, one being raised up, one going down. And we know that from, this, from Genesis that this is all pointing us to Jesus' death. So this passage, the reason it's a whole chapter is because it's pointing ahead. It's reminding us, hey, take note of this. Something's coming. This is foreshadowing something. What could it be foreshadowing? When you think of anywhere in the New Testament, a man is hung on a tree, a man says, remember me. One is raised, one is cast down. But you know what? Where are we turning? Turn with me to Luke 23. And let's look at the thieves on the cross. I believe Genesis, Genesis 40 here. The reason this chapter is the length that it is and as detailed as it is, is because it's a clue. It's saying something's going to happen that we're foreshadowing right now. And when it happens, you need to take note. So look with me if you would. The New Testament, at the death of Jesus, as we approach the cross, what happens in Luke 23? 
starting in verses 32 and 33 for context, and then we'll jump down to verse 39. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus, like Joseph, has two criminals with him. Look with me at verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him. Railed means he's screaming and he's cursing at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this, is, this is such a powerful section. You know, God could have ordained it so that Jesus hung on the cross by himself. But these two thieves are there to teach us a message. And Genesis 40 is there with those dreamers to point us to those two thieves. So let's take a moment and ask the question, why are these two thieves there? What is, what is the message of the two thieves? I think it's this, that salvation comes from professing faith and knowing Christ. Listen to the profession of the second thief. First he says, do you not fear God? Salvation comes first from knowing to fear God. Do you, do you know who God is? Do you, do you recognize, hey, there's a God and it's not me? And then he says, I deserve to be here. He recognizes his own sin. I am being crucified because I deserve to be crucified. And you were conspirator and you deserve to be crucified too. But Jesus does not. And he recognizes the innocence of Jesus, the injustice of Jesus' suffering. And he knows that Jesus is going to a heavenly kingdom and he recognizes Jesus is the son of God going to a heavenly kingdom. I recognize I'm a sinner and I recognize I need Jesus to remember me. My only hope is that Jesus remember me. That is, that is his prayer. It's not an elegant sinner's prayer. It's not a long paragraph. Simply remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's worth noting that as he's saying these words, he's also being crucified. So his arms are stretched out. His hands are broken with nails through them. The death of a cross is the death, death of asphyxiation. His body is stretched in such a way that he can't breathe correctly. You die on the cross as, by slowly and painfully as possible running out of oxygen. Your body cannot support your lungs correctly, so you can't breathe, and you die over an extended period of time. It's the most painful death the Romans could think up. It's slow. It racks your body. And most importantly, it makes it very hard to talk. Because to talk, you have to push your body up, and that pushes pain into your broken hands. So he is pushing himself up to get these words out. He can't point at Jesus because his hands are broken. But he raises his chest up and through painful breaths, remember me, I'm a sinner. I fear God and I know that Jesus is my only hope of salvation and I want him to remember me. He didn't have to say anything. He could have hung there and died. He was already dead pretty much. But he uses his last painful breast, the last thing he has in the world, to give his life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have nothing left but these breaths, and they hurt, but I'm giving them to you. 
And he speaks up and he rebukes the other thief so that everybody who's watching this this crucifixion, everybody who's looking at his naked, pained, racked body, everybody who's watching the blood coming from his hands, much less the blood coming off of Jesus and his, his body that's been beaten even worse than he has, and say, that's Jesus. How are you guys missing it? That's Jesus. And he's the one you must be trusting in. And so he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus answers just as he promised he would in John 6, 37. To those who cry out to him, he will not cast away. And the the thief on the cross must have heard this. He must have heard the gospel message so that he would know that he needs to cry out to Jesus. God has revealed it to him, and now he can't keep silent. He must use his pained, dying breath to say, Jesus, I will trust in you. But he must cry out, friends. If he hangs there and and mentally just says, well, that's Jesus over there. I hope he likes me. That wouldn't have been enough. He must cry out. He must make a profession. And so he makes a profession. But he also, he must cry out to the real Jesus. And this is important. He has to cry out to the Jesus on the cross, the actual Jesus. Because think about our first thief. What is he doing? He's saying, Jesus, cut yourself free so you can cut me free so I can go back to living the way I want to live. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. There's no life change there. He says, Jesus, if you're really God, you'll do what I want. You'll cut me free so I can go live my life and do my own thing and and see you later, Jesus. Thanks for helping. And the, the first thief is selfish. He has a Jesus of his own mind that he's created. Jesus, if he's real, would cut me free and let me live my own life. But the second thief recognizes his sin, his need of Christ and says, I confess my sins. I know I'm helpless and I have nothing left to give. But please remember me. And so I have to ask you this question. Have you cried out for salvation from the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus on the throne? Or have you kept silent in fear? Have you let the pain of this world weigh you down so much that you can't even raise your voice to profess Christ? Or are you like this this first thief who cries out, Set me loose so I can live how I want to. Because at the end of the day, you're one of these two people. Either you're demanding that Jesus lets you do what you want to do and be free on your own terms. Why can't you just do things my way, Jesus? That's the, the, the bent of your heart. I just I want to live my life my way. And that, that, that shadows all your prayers. And, and so sadly, there are so many professing Christians these days and churches, and even denominations, and that seems to be their bent. They have no problem ordering their version of Jesus around and saying, Jesus, you've got to do things my way. You've got to let me do my life, and i got to do my thing. And, you know, you can be there to bless it and kind of rubber stamp it and let me into heaven when I tell you to. And, and this is the, 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 this first man on the cross. Or are you like the second? Do you, do you confess your sin, confess your helplessness, and just say, Jesus... Remember me. Because Jesus does remember him. This man is given assurance of salvation stronger than almost any other character in the Bible. He says, you will be in heaven today. Jesus says, doesn't say that to almost anybody else, if at all. But this man knows he's going to heaven. And Jesus clarifies, that was enough. Your dying breath was enough. You didn't have anything else to give. He didn't have enough life left to join a church or serve in a Sunday school class or in the nursery or, you know, he never got a bulletin. He never did anything. He shared his faith 
while naked and dying to a bunch of people who were onlooking. And he said, Jesus, remember me. And then he passed away. That was enough. It was enough for him to profess his faith and to find his, his life in Christ. And a lifetime of sin that, that, that was, whatever he did was bad enough that the Romans gave him the worst punishment. He got the worst punishment. He must have done something awful. He did something unspeakable. And the Bible doesn't even tell us what he did. But whatever it was, he repents of it. And Jesus forgives him. And Jesus restores him. And when Jesus goes into paradise, this man goes into paradise too. Will you give your life to Jesus? This Jesus, this Jesus who doesn't ask anything but that you trust him and that you cry out to him. This Jesus who promises to remember. Friends, if you haven't put your hope in this Jesus, I urge you today to wrestle with the Jesus of the Bible, to cry out to him, to submit your life, say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am messed up. Yes, I've done things in my life I don't want to talk about to anybody, but I confess it all and I'm trusting in you. Jesus, will you remember me? Because if you do, Jesus has promised he will remember you and he will save you and he will be there for you on the day of eternity, on the day of judgment, and your sins will be paid. And this, this is the powerful parallel between the thief on the cross and these two strange Egyptians having dreams in Genesis 40. But look back with me now at verse 23 of Genesis 40. There's one more very important thing that this text has for us. Genesis 40, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In a sense, this is the most important verse of this chapter. Because after all the waiting, the dreams, the interpretation, the correct interpretation, everything goes right in the plan, right? He's got his whole plan figured out. He gets the dream exactly right. Cupbearer is now right-hand man of Pharaoh again. And forgotten again. Third time in his life. And remember from verse 4, they were in prison together a while. They didn't just meet when this dream sequence happened. They'd known each other a while. They'd been stuck in the, prisons next, in the prison cells next to each other. They knew, the cupbearer knew him. If he was to have a friend in the world, it should have been this Egyptian cupbearer. And yet, he's betrayed again by the man who should have been his friend. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been betrayed by Potiphar's household. And now he's been betrayed by the cupbearer. Every single human in his life has betrayed him. So let's ask why. Why is God allowing everybody in his life to betray him? Is, is God being cruel here? Why does God allow Joseph to be forgotten by everyone over and over and over now? If the story of Joseph is pointing us ahead to the cross, what's the meaning of this? What is the meaning of the constant betrayals and abandonment? Now, remember last week, we talked about this a little bit, that Jesus would also be betrayed, that he would be abandoned by everyone. When he makes it to the cross, all of his disciples have fled. The, the, the thousands and thousands of people who ate his food and professed, oh, we like this Jesus guy, they're all gone, gone. Jesus is betrayed by everyone. The people he did miracles for, the people he fed, they've all scattered. And now he's alone with this dying thief, and the dying thief is the one confessing his his, his sins, and the dying thief is the one proclaiming the gospel from the cross. Where has he been the, the rest of the book? You know, and, and, and we see this constant betrayal. So it's pointing ahead to that. But I think there's even more to it. Because you see, all of humanity's attempts in the Bible and throughout all of history, all of our attempts to make ourselves right with God, they fail. Because salvation 
will never come through our will and our means. Because like the cupbearer, we forget. We betray God. Our best efforts are not enough. In this story, we are the cupbearer. We are not Joseph. We're the cupbearer. We're the ones who screw up. We're the ones who are extremely blessed by God and then immediately turn around and forget about it. And this is us, the ones who forget, the ones who screw up, the ones who have been given a great blessing. We've been given life and and a wonderful world to live in, and yet we turn our backs on God. We're offered salvation by Jesus and fail to lift our voices to worship him. And we live in sin and we we fight and we wrestle and we get distracted. We are the cupbearer. We are the forgetful ones. But God is the one who did not forget Joseph. He's still with him. He doesn't betray his promises. Remember back at the beginning of the story. He promised Joseph, someday the world is going to bow down to you and I'm going to use you to save the world. That's still coming. God's not done with Joseph and his promise is coming. But in this moment, he needs Joseph to understand that if Joseph trusts in mankind, if he puts confidence in princes, he's not going to make it. This cupbearer is not his savior. His savior is God and God alone, not the cupbearer, not turning over a new leaf, not being good enough for God, not working hard, not being crafty and thinking about a strategy to get out of jail. His salvation is going to come from God alone. And we'll see next week, it's going to come through a dream and God's going to jog this cupbearer's memory and get him back on track. But it's going to be God who does the memory jogging, not the cupbearer returning the favor. It's, it's so important for us to recognize that it is God who has been faithful to us. Remember in Genesis 2, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden with all the beautiful, glorious things, there are four rivers that flow out of that garden. And what's along every single one of those river, rivers? Gold, metals, uh, resources, food, abundant food. God didn't just put mankind in a garden. He put mankind in a world filled with good things. And then in Genesis 3, it was mankind that sinned against God and earned the curse. And in chapter 4, we saw murdering entering into the world. And by the time we get to the flood, God is destroying the earth so that, that mankind doesn't wipe itself out. And, and reestablishing himself and reestablishing his problem with, with Abraham. And allowing sinful generation after sinful generation to live so that he might raise up a people. The cruelty is us. Mankind is the one who brought sin and badness and evilness to this world. It is, God is not cruel in this passage. He is the only kind one because he allows us to live. He does not destroy mankind for their sins, but, but, but stays with them generation after generation, offering his own son Jesus so that we might have a way to be restored, so that he have, might have a way to call a people to himself. And so God is kind to Joseph, despite all of the cruelty of all of humanity. Because the kindness, the joy, the restoration will only come from God and only come from Jesus. And he wants Joseph to recognize this and to see that there is going to be salvation, but it will come from God. Now Joseph is going to have to wait two more years before chapter 41. There's a time jump here. Thankfully, we're going to have another sermon next week, Lord willing. So you only have to wait a week. And of course, you can always read ahead if you haven't read the story or you want to reread it. You know, you've got your Bible in front of you. You're free to read ahead if you want to know what's going to happen. But Joseph, he's waiting two years. In two years, 
to serve faithfully, to live as God's man in the prison, waiting and watching for God to move in his life, living in the season, living with open hands, waiting to see what God is going to do with him. But as we conclude this passage, I want to say this. No matter if you're fighting through tough circumstances in life, you're battling sin in your own heart, or you're wrestling with your salvation. Do I really know God? Do I know the Jesus of the Bible? Do, have I really submitted my life to Christ? Whatever it is you're wrestling with, I want to encourage you that the cupbearer remind you that our hope is in God and God alone. Let this text point you to the God of the Bible. Friends, we cannot achieve salvation by ourselves. And I urge you, get to know the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible, the God who loves us enough to send his son so that we might be rescued. And I encourage you, stop yelling at God to do what you want and to, to give you what you think you need and to do things on your timetable and meet your objectives like this first thief on the cross. But like the second thief on the cross, recognize your sins, confess your sins, your weakness, and whatever God has given you, it's going to be more than a few dying painful breaths. Whatever God has given you left on this time on earth, use that to the Lord. Say, God, I give my life to you. Not because I need to earn or because I need to perform well enough for you. Simply out of gratitude, I want to serve you. I want to be found in God's people. I want to love you and I want to love others. And I want to cry out and tell other people that there is hope, that there is joy, there is love on the cross. I encourage you, friends, that when you stand on the day of judgment, all of your achievements, all of your life ambitions will fade away. And all that will remain is your life before Jesus. And if Jesus remembers you on that day, as he promised he will if you cry out to him, that will be enough that Jesus remembers you. It was enough for this man on the cross. In all of eternity, 10,000 times 10,000 years, he will be with Jesus now. And my prayer is that I would be with Jesus on that day and that you would be on Jesus with that day too. Let's pray and then we'll take a moment of silence. Father, Thank you that our salvation is in you alone. Thank you that you didn't leave it up to me, to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can be honest, that we fight and struggle with sin, that our struggles with sin are hard. Thank you, Lord, that you are good enough to be patient with us, that you are good enough to be kind to us, that you see our struggles and have pity on us. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not based on our eloquence, our ingenuity, but on our love for you and our trust. Help us, Lord, to trust Jesus. Throw us to the cross, Lord. Help us to stay at the empty tomb. Help us to live the hope that we have. Help us to those who are here who don't have that hope to find that hope. Give us hope, Lord, and help us to stay in that hope. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray.